good morning, everybody. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Jesus, I ask that um, as we all sit before a, a seemingly difficult and unsettling text, I ask that your spirit would make all things clear. I pray that you um, would be, be the one speaking through my words. They would not be my own, but they would be your spirit. I pray that you would make our ears attentive, open our eyes, open our hearts to hear from you. And I pray this morning that you would, you would show us the power of what true faith looks like, even when it comes from the, the most unlikely places. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Jared Grice. If you're a guest here or if you don't know me, I'm uh, in charge of our music here, so I'm usually on the other side of the stage, but I'm really, really privileged and honored to be here to share with you from um, a text that has great has caused great fear and trembling in me. It's kind of a, it's kind of a difficult one, um, but we're going to jump into this. Today, our, our primary passage that we're going to be using is Matthew 15. Um, You'll notice, though, as we begin to talk about this, that the Isaiah passage and the psalm that we read this morning all are interwoven into this theme this morning. Um, This particular passage in Matthew has been approached in a number of different ways. And in my preparation, I'll be honest, I commentators give lots of different perspectives on what Jesus is doing in his interaction with this woman. It raises a lot of eyebrows if we read it and don't understand the subtext and the background of what's going on. Today, I really wanna narrow in on one particular facet, one aspect of the truth of this passage, and that is God's heart for the foreigner, for the stranger, for the outcast. But I wanna start today with a question. How many of you have pets indoors? You can raise your hand. Most of us, right? Um, I do not. I have chickens. They stay outside. But um, if you have pets indoors, let me think to yourself, what kind of rules do you have set in place for those animals? Maybe they're not allowed to be on the furniture. Maybe they're not allowed to bark inside if you have dogs. Um, Maybe their time inside is limited or they can't jump on the guests. Or maybe you have no rules at all. Maybe your animals rule the house. Um, And, you know, to each their own. But I grew up with gigantic dogs inside. Um, My parents had labs from the time that I was young, and my wife Morgan affectionately calls them horses, Um, maybe unaffectionately, I don't know. Um, But it was a normal occurrence for us to to share our 1,200-square-foot house with two or three gigantic canines at any given point. Um, And they were in charge, right? The dogs were in charge. They, They did not respect anyone's space at all. Um, and so there was, there, there was one year in particular that this really kind of came to a head. Now, I grew up in rural Oklahoma, a town that was a couple thousand people, and there was nothing to do. There was nothing ever exciting happening in Frederick, Oklahoma. Um, about the only thing to be excited about was the new flavor of Dr. Pepper at the local United Grocery Store or Bubba Wayne's new motorcycle helmet. You know, like there was, there was nothing that drew a lot of excitement in, in that town. But there was one year in particular, that there was a new baker in town and she baked these incredible elaborate cakes. And it was my birthday and my parents decided to get me this cake. 
Now, um, I, you know, as a musician playing guitar growing up, they decided it would be a good idea to get a cake that was shaped like a guitar. And, and I'm not gonna lie, it was pretty impressive. We, we show up to the house after having dinner, we're, we're full to the brim, and then they present this beautiful cake. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty incredible. And they were so excited and so proud that this lady in town made this cake. And so, you know, we were thinking to ourselves, we're pretty full. We're not really ready for like a bunch of sugar right now. So we decided to go for a walk around the neighborhood to kind of walk off the carbs that we had at the restaurant to prepare ourselves for more, right? So we're out walking, we come back, and as we're walking in the door, we walk into the kitchen and the cake that had been displayed on kind of the bar area of the kitchen is now gone. And we're thinking to ourselves, no one, was, no one else was here, what happened? And so we're looking and we, we can't find the cake. And then sure enough, my dad rounds the corner and says with a very loud voice, I'm not gonna use the words that he said, but he said, what in the world did you do? And we look on the floor of the kitchen, there is cake smeared and strewn all over the floor. It doesn't resemble a guitar anymore. I don't know what it resembles. And then on the other side of this cake are two gigantic Labradors laying down in what looks like a sugar coma. Um, these dogs ate the entirety of this cake. Now, the issue with my family was that they skipped church on the Sunday when the preacher was preaching about Matthew 15, right? When, when Jesus says to the woman, the Canaanite woman, you're not supposed to give the food that belongs to the children to the dogs, right? My parents missed that Sunday. Um, but on a serious note, today's passage is, is not really about rules for domesticated animals. It's about something much more deep. This passage is communicating an important truth about God's heart for the outsider, for the foreigner, for those who are far from him. And what I love is that in true Jesus fashion, he teaches us this truth through the most unlikely character, a pagan Gentile outcast. So you have to understand that in first century Israel, the, the sociocultural landscape was anything but unified. You have Jewish people living in Roman occupied territory who had a long history of ethnically and culturally kind of marking themselves off or delineating themselves from outsiders. And then you have on the outskirts of Jerusalem, you have all of these kind of ethnically mixed Gentile areas. So if you're a first century Jew and you're reading this passage, or really if you're anyone paying attention, you can tell that this is an unsettling passage to say the least. The interaction that Jesus has with this woman shows us that there is a clear ethnic, but also spiritual and cultural barrier that's looming in the background. In our own culture, we're not unfamiliar with this, right? We, we understand that there are geographical, political, religious, cultural barriers that exist. We know what it's like to want unity, but all we see is disunity and division. But what I love about Jesus is that in this interaction with this woman, he reveals that he is not afraid to step directly into the place that everyone else says is off limits and show what God's plan is really about, to turn people's expectations upside down. This woman's demonstration of faith and her awareness of who Jesus really is, 
is an example for us of what it looks like to approach Jesus in humility, in vulnerability, and in persistent faith. And so as we dig into today's passage, I don't really want to get into the debate of what Jesus was saying to this woman, what the ethnic and the the cultural divisions were. I wanna get into how this woman is an example of what true faith looks like and how so often in our own hearts as people who are welcomed into God's family still act like strangers and foreigners. So today's sermon has two, two main points. The first is that we will look at how Jesus brings us from isolation to inclusion. And then secondly, how Jesus brings us from scraps to a seat at the table. And so I wanna just reread the passage. We're gonna read um, Matthew starting in verse 21, and I'm gonna go up to verse 26. It says, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and they begged him saying, send her away for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. We'll go ahead and stop there. You see, you have to understand that Jesus didn't accidentally end up in this area. If we read the passages before, we see that there were, there were a lot of things going on. There were miracles. Jesus had fed the 5,000. He had healed people. He had done lots of things that was drawing a lot, of det- a lot of attention. And Jesus was withdrawing from that area into the area of Tyre and Sidon. This region, as we talked about, was ethnically mixed. It was primarily a Gentile area, people who didn't worship God the way the Israelites did. And after these events that had unfolded in the previous chapters, Jesus was getting attention not only from the Jewish people and from Gentiles and from all kinds of people paying attention, but he was also getting attention from the Pharisees and the Pharisees were beginning to plot to kill him. So Jesus is pulling away and he intentionally goes to Gentile territory. This reminds me a lot of when he interacts with the Samaritan woman and he intentionally goes through Samaria. When he approached, when he was approached by this Canaanite woman, his disciples immediately understand that this woman, traditionally speaking, has no business talking to Jesus. Not only is she a woman approaching a man, which is culturally off limits in this time, but she is a pagan Gentile woman. And not only is she a pagan Gentile woman, but she's a pagan Gentile woman who is ritually unclean because she has a daughter who's possessed by a demon. You've got to understand everything that's going on in this woman's life. Not only was she isolated from the Jewish people, but it's very likely that she was isolated from her own people because she has a a, a daughter who's demon possessed. This woman has lost so much and she's in dire pain and desperation. She's isolated. Isolation is something that if you've experienced it, is dehumanizing. G.K. Chesterton um, said in his book, The Man Who Is Thursday, he says, through all this ordeal, 
His root horror had been isolation. And there are no words to express the abyss between isolation and having one ally. It may be conceded to the mathematicians that four is twice two, but two is not twice one. Two is 2,000 times one. What is Chesterton saying? He's saying that the difference between being isolated and having one friend is immensely greater than the difference between having one friend and two friends. You see, this woman was a woman who was overwhelmed and overcome with isolation. In our own lives, whether we've experienced isolation in the past few years from what happened with COVID, or we experience isolation from our family, from our friends, through rejection, whatever it is, isolation is something that can completely paralyze and debilitate us. I'm a high school principal and in my own experience, seeing how isolation has emotionally and socially wreaked havoc in the lives of young people is overwhelming. We all know what this experience is like and what we see in this passage immediately is a woman who knows what isolation is and who has nothing else. Jesus' disciples are trying to get Jesus to perpetuate this isolation. They're saying, Jesus, send her away. She's coming to us now. We don't know what to do, so just get rid of her. And so I wanna, I wanna narrow in specifically on that subject of isolation in our own lives because when we think about brokenness and when we think about sin, the result when we read the pages of scripture is isolation. When you think about Adam and Eve, what happens after Adam and Eve sin? They're sent away from the garden. They're separated from the presence of God. When the people in Babel build a monument unto themselves, God scatters them and isolates them from one another. Whenever Israel sins and disobeys, God causes them to continue to wander in the wilderness, isolated from the promised land that he had promised them. You see, this scene with this woman is a microcosm of what brokenness in our world causes. It causes separation from God and separation from others. And what Jesus is doing, whenever Jesus makes this comment about the lost sheep of Israel, he's not scolding this woman. He's not telling her, hey, I didn't come here for you. Get out of my face, be gone. He's not scolding her, but what he's doing is he's using this opportunity to teach this woman and to teach the disciples something extremely important. He is drawing her persistence and drawing her faith out in an instructive way. And more than that, he wants this woman to understand what's really going on. The conversation he's having with her is, hey, do you understand culturally who you are and who you're talking to? Do you understand that you are isolated from me? You are separated from me. Are you aware of what you're really asking? And this woman's persistence and her willingness to be vulnerable, to be desperate, to refuse to allow whatever else is limiting her to approach Jesus, these are the things that brought her to the feet of Jesus. And what Jesus does in this moment, even though it might look like he's scolding her, is he's actually dignifying her. Because Jesus could have listened to the disciples and sent her away. But what he does instead is he engages in a conversation with her. 
he includes her. He gave her the dignity of discussion and he was willing to engage her for who he was. He was willing to allow her to demonstrate what courageous faith really looks like. And in our own lives, oftentimes if we're in Christ, even after we've been welcomed into the family of God, we don't approach God this way, right? Whether we're suffering from the consequences of our own sin, or maybe it's the sin of others, or maybe it's the pain or past trauma in our life that keeps us far from God. Oftentimes when we feel overwhelmed, we don't approach God, we retreat from God. We retreat in shame. Shame is destructive. It's a tool of the enemy and it takes many forms. What's interesting about shame is that it, always, it doesn't always look like putting our head down and pulling away. Sometimes shame looks like building our identity on our accomplishments, our careers, our families, our bank accounts, whatever it is. It can cause us to chase cheap pleasure through addiction, through power. It can cause us to turn in on ourselves and become cynical and believe that there's really no good in this world. And ultimately, shame damages our ability to come before God. Dan Allender is um, uh, a Christian psychologist and counselor, counselor, and he says, the damage done through abuse is awful and heinous, but it's minor compared to the dynamics that distort our relationship with God and rob us of the joy of loving and being loved by others. What Dan Allender is saying is that shame and abuse and sin and brokenness, it doesn't just affect the way we see ourselves, but it affects the way we see God and it affects the way we see those around us. Shame is the ultimate isolator. And I think so often our posture before God is that God is distant, uncaring. Maybe he's abusive or he's vindictive. Our posture before God is the opposite of what this woman does. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus's heart is not to isolate a broken woman. His heart is to include her, to bring her from isolation to inclusion, to dignify her pain and to dignify her story. Regardless of what culture says, regardless of what your family history says, what your sin tells you, what your fear tells you, what your addiction or your anger or your anxiety tells you, Christ is showing us that he has traveled into strange foreign territory to remove our isolation and to include us into his family. And we see that right away in this conversation with this woman. He doesn't send her away, but he dignifies her with the conversation. And so Christ wants to bring us from isolation to inclusion, but more than that, he wants to bring us from scraps to a seat at the table. And so I want to read the second section of this. If I can find my page here. Starting in verse 26. In verse 26, Jesus says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The woman said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And the woman's daughter was healed instantly. The thing that stands out to me most as I was reading this passage is that 
the woman doesn't come to Jesus with her arms crossed. She doesn't come to Jesus giving him side eye like she's skeptical of him. She didn't wait to see how he would respond, but how did she approach him? She knelt in a posture of worship. Just like the psalmists, as we read the Psalms that are crying out to God in moments of desperation, she is vulnerable and laid bare and saying, I have nothing but you. I'm begging you. Right away, this woman understands something the disciples are notoriously slow to get. You see, the disciples are constantly, they're trying to see who's better in the eyes of Jesus. They're vying for power. They're vying for status. They don't get it. But this woman who is a Gentile outcast gets it. And Jesus sees it in her. The following dialogue, as we've talked about in this passage, gives a lot of people great pause. Um, The word dog in first century Israel is a derogatory term toward Gentile people. And so it can be really easy to read this and think, wow, Jesus is being pretty savage, right? Like he's, he's like telling her something awful. But I think that there's something deeper going on here because you see in Jesus's reaction that he's not trying to ridicule or send this woman away, but he's using this as an opportunity, as we said, to help her understand the real limitations and the real risk of what she's doing but also I think to help the disciples understand where real faith can come from. Something happens when we get to verse 26 and verse 27, and it's abrupt. They go from talking about dogs eating scraps and whether or not this woman really deserves anything from Jesus. This woman approaches him humble and vulnerable and in her pain and persistent, and Jesus suddenly commends her. And he doesn't just commend her like, hey, high five, you get it, right? What Jesus does is he says, oh woman, great is your faith. Guys, we have to understand this is an affectionate, embracing recognition of what this woman has understood. What changed is that Jesus saw in her that moment of transformation, as Jesus is explaining to her that, you know, I did come first for the people of Israel. That was my original mission. Meanwhile, Jesus had been rejected from Israel, the area he had just fleed from. He's reminding her, yeah, I did come first for the people who had the proper seat at the table. And yeah, you're right. Dogs don't get to eat the bread of the children who sit at the table. But this woman reveals a remarkable moment of faith. She appeals for food from under the table. She says, you know what, Jesus, I get it. I know I don't deserve a seat at the table. I know I haven't done anything impressive. I haven't done anything worth your attention, but can I at least get some scraps from under the table? And in that moment, Jesus responds to her, not by going, yeah, I guess I'll give you some crumbs. He goes, no, stand up. You do get a seat at the table. You are welcomed into the family of God and you get to sit at the proper place with the children. This is incredible. By commending her faith and then healing her daughter, he isn't just being a nice guy. He is giving her the same treatment that God's children get. He is offering her a seat at the table. This extension of grace and this revealing of his true identity this is an affectionate embrace. I want to imagine that he, he stands her up from kneeling and brings her in for a hug because that's what's, that's what's happening here. That's the impact of his response. 
But what about you? And what about me? Do you believe that you have a seat at the table if you are in Christ? Because the reality is if we believe in Jesus, we are children of God. We've been given a seat at the table, but how many of us act like all God really gives us is scraps? If we're honest, how many of us believe that God has redeemed us, but he just kind of tolerates us now? He just sort of puts up with us. You know, in my own life, I, I can tell you, I believe God has saved me. He's redeemed me. I've done nothing to deserve it. His love is unconditional. I can say all the right things, but really I kind of live like he let me in the kitchen, but I just kind of get the leftovers, you know? When we are welcomed into the family of God, we are brought from being orphans to being made children. But a lot of times we live like God has this, you owe me debt hanging over our heads. In so many ways, I think this is why we see isolation among the children of God. God's people come to him, not like this woman, but we come to him in shame. We come to him afraid that he's gonna reject us. We're comfortable with the door being opened, but we'd rather sit in the corner because we don't really feel like we're guests at his table. So what do we do instead? We toil, we work, we try to impress God. We do all of these things to try to get the accolades from God because we don't really believe that he has given us a seat. We know he forgives us, but we believe that he just sort of tolerates us. And I think that we fear coming before God this way, vulnerable, in our pain, broken, knowing we're not impressive because we are allowing shame to stop us. And so what this passage shows us is a few important things. Number one, you and I aren't orphans. We haven't been given a handout by a suspicious father who's just waiting for us to screw up. You're not given grace when it's convenient and then God decides to pull it, pull it away when you've run up your punch card. God isn't surprised by your sin or my sin. He's not afraid of our brokenness. You don't have to retreat in isolation and hide from God because you're afraid he's gonna reject you. And you don't have to substitute Jesus for your career or your skills or your addictions. You and I are beloved sons and daughters of God who have not only been given a seat at the table, but like the prodigal son, we have been adorned We've been adorned with a ring and with a coat. You're given a seat at the table, not because you deserve it. Just like this woman, precisely because we don't deserve it, but because Jesus has clothed us in his righteousness and in his deserving. And we are promised, we're promised that God who started his work in us will bring it to completion. He will keep you, he will hold you, he will form you fully into his image. And I think when we understand this, it changes the way we see ourselves and the way we see others. And so as we start to wrap things up, um, I, I just, I want us to understand that this woman was willing to risk it all to come to Christ. She was willing to, in, in a lot of ways, become blind to the things that culture was saying to her. Culture was saying, no, you've got too much to lose. Jesus doesn't want anything to do with you. The disciples are trying to send her away, but she became blind to that. She said, I don't care. I know that this is, as she says, the son of David, the Messiah. 
I know this is the one who can heal my daughter and who can turn my life around. And I don't care what the limitations are. I don't care what my sin tells me. I don't care what my, what my isolation tells me. I don't care what you disciples tell me. I'm coming before this man. And when she did, her entire world turned upside down. And for us, when we are willing to become vulnerable, when we are willing to become overcome with the same kind of holy blindness that she was, when we can come to God in this way, we will know the true power of Christ. And look, I get it. This is hard to accept. We live in a culture that trumpets achievement and individualism and us being able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do it all ourselves. We live in a culture that says the weakest thing you can do is be vulnerable. And you know what? Christ says the strongest thing you can do is become vulnerable. When it matters most, when it hurts the most, when you have the most to lose, that's when it matters. And rather than retreating in our shame, we need to take a page from the book of this Gentile woman and come to Christ regardless of what it costs. Before, before I show this final clip this morning, um, I wanna tell you a little bit about it. So one of my favorite movies is Dead Poets Society. Um, I had a very winsome professor in, in um, seminary who really made me aware of the, the genius of this movie. And there's a scene that I wanna share with you, but I wanna give you a little background first. Um, in this scene, there's a, a young man named Todd Anderson. And Todd Anderson is this, it's kind of like what we've been talking about. He's this fearful, terrified, isolating himself from his classmates, young man. And he, he, he doesn't want to be open. He doesn't wanna take the risk of, of the creativity that the teacher is trying to draw out of him. And so Mr. Keating, the teacher, uh, gives them an assignment and the assignment is to write their own poem. Everyone does it. Some of them don't take it seriously. Some of them make a joke about it. And when it comes Todd Anderson's turn, he doesn't wanna do it. He's afraid. He doesn't wanna be vulnerable. He doesn't want to open up. But I want you to watch at the way Mr. Keating responds to him in this clip and how similar this is to the way Jesus approaches us. So if we can show the clip. Now, who's next? Mr. Anderson, so you're sitting there in agony. Come on, Todd, step up. Let's put you out of your misery. I, I didn't do it. I didn't write a poem. Mr. Anderson thinks that everything inside of him is worthless and embarrassing. Isn't that right, Todd? And that's your worst fear. Well, I think you're wrong. I think you have something inside of you that is worth a great deal. I sound my barbaric yawp the rooftops of the world. W, W, Uncle Walt again. Now, for those of you who don't know, a yawp is a loud cry or yell. Now, Todd. I would like you to give us a demonstration of a barbaric yawp. <laughs> come on, you can't yawp sitting down. Let's go, come on, up. Gotta get in yawping stance. Uh, a yawp. No, not just a yawp, a barbaric yawp. Yawp. Come on, louder. Yawp. Oh, that's a mouse. Come on, louder. Yawp. Oh, good God, boy, yell like that. There it is. 
You see? You have a barbarian in you, after all. Now, you don't get away that easy. Picture Uncle Walt up there. What does he remind you of? Don't think. Answer. Go on. A, a, a madman. What kind of madman? Well, think about it. Just answer again. A crazy madman. Oh, you can do better than that. Free up your mind. Use your imagination. Say the first thing that pops into your head, even if it's total gibberish. Go on. Uh, uh, a sweaty tooth madman. Good God, boy. There's a poet in you, after all. There. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close them. Now, describe what you see. Uh, I, I close my eyes. Yes? Uh, and this image floats beside me. The sweaty tooth madman. The sweaty tooth madman with a stare that pounds my brain. Oh, that's excellent. Now, give him action. Make him do something. His hands reach out and choke me. That's wonderful, wonderful. And all the time he's mumbling. What's he mumbling? Uh, mumbling truth. Yeah, yeah. Truth like, like a blanket that always leaves your feet cold. Forget them, forget them. Stay with the blanket. Tell me about that blanket. You, 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 you push it, stretch it. It'll never be enough. You kick at it, beat it. It'll never cover any of us. From the moment we enter crying to, to the moment we leave dying, it'll just cover your face as you wail and cry and scream. this it's one of my favorite scenes in any movie um and, and what i love about this scene is we see two things happening we see blinding and embrace you see todd anderson was afraid to be vulnerable because of what it might cost him and in that moment mr keating covers his eyes he tells him to close his eyes and even though his friends are laughing and things are happening, trying to distract him to tell him he has no business doing what he's doing, he says, no, don't pay attention to them. And he brings him in for an embrace. And in that moment, transformation happens. If you know the rest of the movie, Todd Anderson goes from being the most terrified little boy in that classroom to being the most courageous one when it matters most. In our own lives, when we are like that, when we are afraid to come to God vulnerable and open, and willing to be broken before him. Jesus brings us in, he embraces us, and he says, don't pay attention to them. Don't pay attention to what there is to lose, because I promise you that if you're willing to lose everything, you will gain everything in me. And that is what happens in this passage with this woman. She is willing to lose it all, and in being willing to lose it all, she finds life. So we have a choice this morning. We can be like the Jews who had rejected Jesus and, and insist that you know our way of worshiping God is the way we wanna do it. We know all the right answers. We like to play it safe. We wanna you know, be the ones who, who are in charge of our own salvation. We can be like that. Or we can be like the disciples and we can just be kind of dense and not get it and be fighting for the wrong things. Or we can become like this Canaanite woman and we can become vulnerable before Christ. And when we do, I promise you it will change the way we see the world around us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have given us examples in yourself, but we, we, we love and we, we marvel at how you can use the most unlikely characters to show us what true faith looks like. I pray this morning that wherever each person is, whatever stands in the way of allowing them to be open and vulnerable and broken before you. I pray, Lord, that it, by your spirit, you would show them that those barriers are, are merely keeping them from experiencing true faith and true transformation. I pray, God, that we would become blind to the things that tell us that we have too much to lose 
And I pray that we would respond to your embrace. Just like you said to this woman, oh woman, great is your faith. Lord, we pray that you would see that you have embraced us and given us a seat at the table. You haven't given us scraps, but you have given us something far greater. So God, I pray that you would teach us to live this way as children who come to a father that loves them and welcomes them regardless of the brokenness. We pray this all in Christ's name.